emotional manipulation, tribalism, and using cognitive behavioral therapy to think before you feel. Ask me anything for episode EF9. I'm Scott Ely. Welcome to episode EF30 of the Evolve Faster podcast. This is a spoiler alert to state that we'll be looking back at questions related to episode EF9 of the Evolve Faster podcast, which was season one, episode seven, titled, I Feel, Therefore I Am, capsized on the river emotion. We did a behind the podcast for this one last week, and this week we're going to do more general questions just about the episode itself. To set the stage, I'm going to remind you of what the episode was about a little bit by reading a paragraph from the description on the website. We all have emotions, but what are they and do we need them? David Hume felt we are nothing more than slaves to our passions, and maybe so. Countless theories like the Harabu theory show that we'll jump onto the emotional bandwagon of the masses almost instinctively. Why? To feel safe. But is there a way to break the secure chains of emotions? Is there a way to rationalize the irrational, reason the unreasonable, and be ultimately masters of our feelings? Well, I hope to answer as many of your questions as possible. You can always submit questions at evolvefaster.com forward slash discuss. And here are the questions we're going to try to tackle. Are emotions and instincts the same thing? How do we know when our emotions are being manipulated? Why does society cause us to go down these rat holes of tribal splits and hating groups? Does meditation serve the same purposes as what CBT does? Why do you think it's so hard to do something that matters? Is it tied to our emotions? What makes us happy? Are emotions and instincts the same thing? So it's often thought that instincts and emotions are the same as they are produced in the same part of the brain, namely the amygdala. Psychologist William McDougall coupled specific emotions with specific reactions. We can say that the instinct of running away is connected to the feeling of fear, or that the instinct to have sex is closely tied with the feeling of lust. So let's look at two examples. First, have you ever managed or tried to control an instinct? So imagine walking down the street and suddenly someone jumps out in front of you or from behind a corner. You instinctively jump back in defense or punch the person or run or we all have different instincts. Having had an experience like this, have you ever tried to not do something like that in that split second, like just stand still? In order to do that, you'd have to keep your mind pretty much ready 24 seven, thinking that the situation might happen. Every step of your day would have to be focused on that single possibility where you're consciously aware of that one situation. Now, I don't know about you, but that's hard to pull off and probably not a great use of brain cycles. But so next, have you ever tried to do the trick with your emotions? You're driving and every time someone cuts you off, you start to feel that road rage anger boiling in you and you punch the horn to let them know how you feel, maybe give them a few hand signals. But the next time you decide to stay calm. You start to breathe heavily while telling yourself, stay calm, stay calm. It's another feat that's extremely hard to pull off, but probably with more conscious focus, you, you could do this one more easily than the previous. So there's a correlation between how we feel and how we react. Is hard work enough to learn how to bring ourselves to not feel an emotion? It definitely seems impossible to pull off the moment you decide to do it, but through the course of time, I think it's feasible and it might even be a good thing to try. Finally, think about this one. Are there any emotions you think we're automatically born with that are coded into our 
human program by default. Then what about instincts? Which of the two do you think we learn as, as we grow, emotions or instincts? And if we learn, can we unlearn them in order to reshape the program in a more preferable way? In the episode, Elliot realizes that the entire journey is just a constant circle of calmness and turbulence, calmness and turbulence. But does it ever stop? So how do we know when our emotions are being manipulated? Well, wouldn't you say our emotions are controlled all the time? No matter if it's by the media, products, people around us, or even ourselves? Antonio Damasio, a neuroscientist mentioned in the episode, argues that in order to make decisions, we need emotions. And the bad news is that we often make decisions based on emotions rather than information or facts. Goes without saying, this is some great news for companies or anyone else who's trying to sell us something. And how can you blame them? Chances are some of the listeners right now are in the selling business. And if people didn't rely on emotions to buy things, many businesses would fall faster than a dead tree in a hurricane or maybe a tornado since I'm in the Midwest. It's an interesting scenario to think about. If at one point people would stop relying on emotions to buy things, how would that look? So imagine the massiveness of a change that would have to occur in the economy if people suddenly started buying only what they needed. Do you think the mobile phone industry, for example, would be launching new smartphones, new $1,000 smartphones every year if that was the case? Hell no. I'm not saying the scenario is bad, but there would be a lot of work to switch from the current situation to that one, and it would come at a huge cost because a lot of what gets purchased is on emotion. What can any of us do for program to be controlled? Not by some evil genius sitting in this enormous corporate building that's always covered in dark clouds, but in life in general. Maybe the first thing we have to do is face the music and not feel bad about it. Because if you feel bad, doesn't that just prove the point? <laughs> Realizing that the problem, if you look at it that way, starts with us and not somewhere outside, it sounds like a decent starting point to finding a better way. Why does society cause us to go down these rat holes of tribal splits and hating groups? So tribalism kept us alive for centuries. It's deeply ingrained. Most research shows that people will side with their tribe even when they know it's wrong or immoral to do so. We fear so deeply to be outcast by those who we see as our people. So across the world, we have bloodbaths caused by tribal splits, North versus South in the American Civil War, Balkan Wars in the 90s that split one country into more than five new countries, ethnic conflicts in, in Africa, and, and so on. What's common about these conflicts most of the time is that they're usually only understandable to the people who participate or are caught in that storm. The third-party observer, almost every time, can't make sense of why, these, why the hell these people are fighting. We might argue because the person isn't informed enough, and that's definitely true to some extent. But is it possible it's also because the third-party observer isn't emotionally invested? It's definitely a touchy subject as the observer might not know that one tribe was oppressed by the other and that that was the spark that set off the explosion. Imagine if this third-party observer was given front-row seats to the bloody battle and he has no clue what, why it's happening. All the people look the same to him and the only difference he sees is that one group is coming from the left and the other from the right and both have weapons in their hands. I mean, can't they all just get along? Would be going on in any rational person's mind. And then after the horror is over, 
The observer goes home shocked by what he just witnessed, sits on his warm couch, turns on his mobile phone, and gets angry because of the stupid comments made by the idiotic left or right-oriented people that he doesn't even know but happen to be the opposite tribe of his. Indeed, why do we fall in these rat holes where it's always us against them? And more importantly, is it always necessarily bad? So sports are a great example of tribal splits. You have two groups, sometimes even from the same city, who only differentiate in what color they wear on the field. And on the field, they're enemies and the war is only for a specific amount of time, depending on the sport. I've, I've mentioned this to people who didn't ever make the connection between tribalism and sports, which to me is, seems to be what it's mostly about. So we probably don't need sports for humanity to survive, and players are paid ridiculous amounts. I was never interested in soccer too much, except the, the two times that I was living in Europe when soccer was going on. Last summer we were there for the 2018 World Cup, and it had me stuck to the screen. It was great being, you know, in, in a place where soccer is so important, or football as they call it. And the reason we enjoy sports, and they're so exciting and, and emotionally investing, is because of these tribal splits. Most people handle it fine, and then you have the face painters. Um, so like everything else, we can't say tribal splits are entirely bad by default. If nothing else, they can be fun in, in certain scenarios. They were a survival instinct that kept us alive. And they can inspire great feats, not just on the field, but tribal rivalry between companies and artists and entrepreneurs and other dividing lines have inspired things that have changed the world. But they do become shitty when someone's head gets cracked open, which unfortunately is a very common result. So can we have one without the other? Or is it necessary to, you know, if you're going to have these kind of competitive things that we can't control the ego that gets involved. I think some simple awareness can help. I mean, one can de-bias oneself with slow and rational attention to where your emotions want to pull you and taking time to figure out why. Maybe this is like Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. Can we teach this? I've heard him speak where he said that even after all the research he's done, he doesn't feel like he has any more conscious control over his fast and slow thinking. So that's a huge disappointment. <laughs> does meditation serve the same purposes like what CBT does? In Western culture, we certainly see similarities why people meditate or do CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that's to improve mental health. We can think of it as an exercise for your mind that leverages neuroplasticity and the slow, deliberate rewiring of maybe unwiring of bad habits and negative thought loops and rewiring new ones. And the obvious difference is the origins. While the earliest forms of meditation come from Hinduism and a bit later Buddhism and Taoism, CBT has its roots in behavioral and cognitive psychology. So one originates in spirituality while the other in science. But they serve the same basic goal to my understanding, mindfulness and actually there's a new wave of CBT called mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy or MBCT for short about which you can find a lot of resources online I'll, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes MBCT directly combines CBT methods with mindfulness meditation which is a process in which you try to bring your attention to the now instead of letting your mind wallow in things that might have been or could have been 
So I don't know much about MBCT, but mindfulness itself is, is a, a simple process that I think probably gets overcomplicated. I remember people thinking that mindfulness means wisdom or being knowledgeable, but it's much simpler than that. It's, it's not nearly as complicated as even other forms of meditation. It's mostly about just focusing your mind on the experience of being, hearing, feeling the experience of sitting in a chair, paying attention to things in your body like breath and heartbeat, instead of just letting your mind run wild. And if it does stray away, you let it and you just bring it back to these simple things. It's a, it's a simple practice of just bringing your attention to the experience of being alive and in that moment. And it's a very calming effect. It's, it's, it is that simple. You don't have to, you know, take training or do any kind of things. You can just walk down the street being mindful of what it's like to walk down that street, not with your mind racing about the meeting you've got tomorrow or anything else. You're just putting one foot in front of the other, feeling the feeling of that foot hitting the ground, feeling the sun in your face and acknowledging that that's a beautiful feeling. That's it. That's mindfulness. And that simple process, even done for five minutes, can take you out of the, the thought loops that you're having. So I'm not familiar with what they do with that related to cognitive behavioral therapy, but I imagine they're just combining the two. I'm clearly not a professional therapist or psychologist, so let me approach this as a creative writer instead with the visual metaphor. Imagine if each of your thoughts is uh, a single sheep and they're all scattered all over the field and randomly running. They should be in the corral, which is the now, inside the fence, organized orderly. But instead, some of them are back behind the house, which is your past, and then some of them are have left the corral and they're in the distant outskirts about to like run out of sight, which is your future. So your task is to round up the sheep into the corral and be in the now and just enjoy this moment that you're in. So obviously sheep aren't likely to do it on their own and they're probably not gonna meditate with you. So you have to steer them in the right direction. And meditation and mindfulness are some of the best tools, the only tools that I know of. So right in front of you is this beautiful day and the sheep are calm in the corral and maybe you're kicking back in a chair having a cold one, enjoying it. But if you're constantly anxious about where are the ones in the distance are going to go, which is worrying about your future thoughts. If you have to keep go checking the backyard, you're not going to enjoy that beer and neither can the sheep. That's mindfulness in a weird sheep metaphor. Um, it's, uh, this is why usually when meditating in a mindfulness capacity, you'll often hear to focus on your breathing. That isn't to learn how to control physical breathing or get a hotline to some divine force. It has nothing to do with any of that. But by focusing on your breath, you're focusing on something that's happening right now with your body that you rarely stop to pause and appreciate. It can be an amazing thing the first time you actually take stock of the things that are just keeping you alive. You can find you get distracted enough from your regular thoughts that your mind relaxes and you can almost feel the stress kind of passing away. Don't you think that just being aware of the fact of where your mind should be in the now, in that corral, in a way just helps. So for example, the next time you feel down or depressed or your mind's running, you'll know that your mind isn't here, but it's somewhere in the future or in the past. And your mind is likely to play a trick on you 
by trying to convince you that you are in the now by providing the argument you're sad about a thing that happened in the present, like losing your job or a partner. But don't you think the real reason you feel bad is that you're thinking about the specific negative situation that's going to affect your future? So actually you're not thinking about the now, you're thinking about what the future implications of that thing that just happened might be. So CBT is more of a process to get you to let go of why you have sheep out of place in the backyard and running amok in the future. Because you likely have a story, like you shouldn't have opened the front gate, you, you shouldn't have let them in the backyard, you shouldn't have gone to get that beer, and you need to rewrite that story, otherwise it's just gonna drive you nuts. CBT with a good therapist, I mean, there are even courses online and everything, I don't know the quality of those, but you can definitely do it through a therapist who's trained in it. And as I understand it, it can help you systematically and methodically reduce regrets about what's going on in the backyard and become less anxious about those sheep that are way out in your future about to run out of your sight. Both CBT and meditation are used for helping with anxiety disorders, schizophrenia, mood swings, even gambling, eating disorders, um, or the latest, internet and social media addiction. Here's an interesting thought. Maybe this is why people find solace in activities like excessive eating or online browsing or gambling, because in a way it steers your thoughts, but the moment you stop the activities, your thoughts run loose again, and you're left with either an empty wallet or an overstuffed stomach. I'll stop short of doing an uninformed psychoanalysis on gambling sheep, and I've already said too much, so. Next, why do you think it's so hard to do something that matters? Is it tied to our emotions? Well, this is a broad question that has too many answers. This could be caused by cognitive dissonance, or worry about having to cross tribal lines, or fear of reprisal, or fear of being wrong. So since I don't want to end up in another sheep example, I'll pick one of the many things that goes wrong commonly, which is simple procrastination. So maybe you just don't do the right thing because the right thing usually takes the most work. So in this case, it may or may not be tied to emotion. It depends on if the avoidance is because it's causing emotional challenges for you. So in this context, this question reminds me of different moments where we're constantly telling ourselves things like, I'll exercise tomorrow, or starting tomorrow, I'll eat healthier, or any, anything along these lines where the next day comes and we fall into the well-known and weirdly cozy procrastination trap. So why do we procrastinate? If you asked Freud, I believe he thought that it originates in poor toilet training. Basically, you can blame your parents for the inability to cross the bridge between intention and action. Um, if you're wondering where to start with raising your child, start there. But many psychologists theorize that, that procrastination is a coping mechanism to shield from unpleasant moments and emotions. And the fee for this shield, feeling guilt and worthlessness, so you get stuck in a vicious cycle. So we can say procrastination is closely tied to our emotional state. And studies show that it's tied to the lack of self-regulation, which brings us back to meditation or CBT as a healthy way of managing to regulate both your emotions and the story in your head as a whole. In terms of doing hard things that matters, it's, you know, I think there are too many answers to that question, but I do think procrastination is one of them that can be tied to emotions. What makes us happy? Let's ask ourselves, how many of us actually know someone who's constantly happy? To me, that person seems like 
a mysterious unicorn that no one's ever seen besides our imagination or in some TV show like Friends. So I don't think humans are designed to be constantly happy. I don't know, maybe there are people, but I haven't met them. And I did meet people, I have met people who are satisfied with themselves and are leading happy lives. But an individual who doesn't have a day where he or she doesn't want anyone near, I don't know. So let's look at the bright side. At least you know you're not the only one. Um, because what do you have to do to be constantly happy? Is being a good person a mandatory ingredient for happiness? On the surface, it seems that way, but for many psychologists, being good isn't necessarily to feel happy. Instead, being happy means being satisfied with who you are no matter why or how. Maybe that's why so many movie villains have that crazy evil laugh. It might be that they're always happy. But if we turn to neuroscience, it might have an interesting answer to the question. I read about um, a guy named Panksepp who thought that seeking is the most important instinct we have. The reason is, according to him, discovering something rewards us with top quality dopamine. You know, the good stuff, not that street corner shit that's cut with some Drano, but this would imply that to be happy, we always need something new, something more. And I think this is a common feeling. As soon as you win whatever race you're in, then all of a sudden there's a void. And now what? It's kind of a, what have you done for me lately? When does that sweet emotion of happiness kick in the most? After days have passed, you get that new toy or beautiful moment with your partner, or the moment you got this new experience. In other words, does that mean that happiness lies in waking up every day and doing something new? If it's true, it's some hard work and makes it all more reasonable why we can't always be happy. But if you ever wanted somewhat proof to that cliche that happiness is not about the goal, but about the journey, well, there you go. So this brings us to the end of this AMA for episode EF9. I apologize to any questions I didn't get to. I tried to cover the, the ones that got to the essence. Sorry for extended sheep metaphors. And uh, keep submitting questions to evolvefaster.com forward slash discuss. And please support the show in any way you can. Share it, give it reviews, put it on your blog, talk about it. And we'll look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take care. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality, original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free-thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. 
Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade? It's time to evolve faster.